Hello, my fellow geoscience aficionados. You are listening to Nice Chats from the Geology Podcast Network. I'm Dr. B, and in each episode, I will interview an expert in various areas in geoscience and share with you a little bit of their knowledge and expertise in the research of natural problems. Each of our episodes has a central theme, and since we'll have an expert walk us through the various subjects, you don't need to worry about having any previous knowledge of what we'll be talking about. As long as you're passionate about the study of geosciences, I, with the help of our guests and occasional co-hosts, will take care of feeding all the information that you need in a casual and fun environment. Today is part two of the Rebecca Trilogy. Our last Rebecca episode was the Research Fellowship of the Ring. This episode is the Teen Towers, and we will close out this trilogy in a few weeks with the Refold of the Hinge. How do the names correlate with our themes for each episode? In no way whatsoever. They're just excellent puns. Today I'm interviewing Professor Rebecca Harrington from the Hu Universität Bochum in Germany, where Sylvia and I are currently conducting our research too. We will talk about all different kinds of earth tremors. Hi, Rebecca. Welcome to Nice Jets. Hi, thanks for having me. So we were talking before, before we started recording, that I've been in Bochum since January. But this is actually the first time that we meet, uh, you know, and we have some time to talk. Thanks COVID, right? Yeah, yeah. Everybody's confined to their offices for right now. Yeah. And we are having to work uh, from an Airbnb while we get our little apartment set up. So, yeah, challenging, but, but we're, we're getting through it. <laughs> Um, how is the crusade going on the uh, update to the Hub website? Uh, it's going pretty well, actually. Uh, right after we talk, we have a meeting with the web design company, which is redoing the website. They're finished with the design phase, and they're now currently working on the technical implementation. So pretty soon we're going to need some nice field images or thin section images or pretty pictures, basically, to upload as content on our new website so you guys can go ahead and be searching through whatever files you have that you want to share <laughs> that's great we had a um, at curting when i was doing my phd we had a zeiss that takes automated uh, panorama pictures very high quality and uh, so i have like some pretty amazing pictures of massive sulfides that are are pretty cool oh great looking forward to seeing them okay so here in Nice Chats, we, we always like to kick things off uh, with a game to break the ice, okay? I usually come up with a clever name for the game, but uh, I'm all out of ideas for this one. <laughs> so I'll be taking suggestions from our listeners. If you, listener, have a good idea about what this game can be called, please send it to me on our email or on our socials. I'll explain the rules and then we can put our thinking caps on. Uh, we have played a game before on this show called Mind Speleology. 
So basically that game, I would give uh, a word to the guest and they would need to say the first geological thing that comes into their mind. So let's say that if that game, you know, mind speleology is the stalagmite, then this game is the stalagmite. And that's a little joke for all of you cave lovers out there. Basically, what we will do this time is this, okay? I'll say something that is geology related, and then you need to give me the first adjective or word, expression, something like that, that comes to your mind. And uh, in addition to that, you can't use the same thing twice. So, okay. for example, if I were to say nice chats, you could, you could answer brilliant, revolutionary, <laughs> or the best podcast in the world. Any of those answers would be acceptable. Okay, all right. Ready to go? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay, so the first one is Earth. Layers. Layers, oh, interesting. <laughs> uh, that's funny because... Um, is that maybe a tendency towards uh, sedimentary rocks? No, I'm thinking more, a little more holistically, like a seismologist. <laughs> okay. I wonder, I wonder um, what would have been your result if you took the quiz we did in an earlier episode with Michaela about the favorite rock type for you. What do you, what do you think you would have gotten? Mm, maybe kimberlite. Kimberlite, okay. And the reason I, so the reason I say this is because I was in the field with student once, the students once, and they played this game where you had to pick the rock which best describes you. And so when I thought about it, I thought, well, maybe kimberlite, because I, I would be observed in the fields far from my place of origin, I guess. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, keeping in team, the next, uh, the next one I have for you is rocks. Oh, there are so many adjectives that come to mind. Um, crystalline. Crystalline. Okay, that's a good one. I would have said maybe tasteful. Because <laughs> you know how people joke that you can lick rocks. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, ocean. Microseismic noise. Oh, man. <laughs> that is completely different from anything I would have answered. <laughs> um, field summer campaign in California. Ah, Anza Borrego. <laughs> what is that? That's where I did some structural, structural geology mapping um, as a student. And it's a really mm -hmm. beautiful area in Southern California. And I just have a lot of good memories of camping with my fellow students and being in the field with my mapping buddy. Um, I mean, there are, I come from Southern California, so there are lots of places I would think of. But yeah, I don't know. That's the first one that comes to mind, I think. That's cool. Um, and now the final one is Field Winter Campaign in Germany. Oh, boy. I haven't done that yet. I don't know. Mud. Yeah. Mud. <laughs> <laughs> or coal. <laughs> yeah, maybe coal. That's true. <laughs> There's a lot of rain here, though. <laughs> Yeah, true. That's why I picked winter, you know, because I thought, man, that would have been a terrible experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But on the other hand, I'm sure that summer field camp in Germany is lovely. That's true. I, I would assume so. I actually haven't done much field work here yet. Um, 
I would kind of assume there are lots of thorns around from black wild blackberry bushes, but <laughs> I don't know. Can't say from experience yet. So I'm gonna go on a limb here and say that we are two for two on awesome Rebecca's so far. I can't wait to see where this trilogy takes us. If you have ideas for future episodes or guests, please write to our email, nicechats at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. You can also follow us and message us on our social media pages, which are listed also in the show notes. And please subscribe to Nice Chats with me, Dr. B, and tell your friends about the show. And if you like your podcast, give us a five-star review. Thank you. Okay, Rebecca, um, I don't know about you, but I am shaking to talk about some tremors. Huh? <laughs> Me too. So, so, so I would like to start by asking you, uh, what causes earth tremors like for example i know that me when i met sylvia for the first time i definitely felt the earth shaking <laughs> but you know besides that what are other processes well there are some geological processes at work too so if you can imagine i mean our earth's crust is permeated with faults from its long tectonic history so faults can be activated and you can have slip on faults from tectonic loading and depending on if you're close to a plate boundary or far from it, that loading happens at different rates. But at least when you feel a tremor, it's because the two sides of the fault are um, moving past each other. And that rupture kind of propagates along the fault at speeds of about two to three kilometers per second, typically. And then it generates seismic waves from the point on the fault that's slipping and those waves radiate outward and that's what you feel in the form of ground motion when you feel the earth shaking at least from an mm -hmm. earthquake i don't know about your wife but from an earthquake sure. <laughs> no my wife has a different kind of magnitude yeah <laughs> um so can you can you tell us a little bit more about your working group at hub so how would you describe the research that you do and the kind of tremors that you're interested in particularly so we're all interested in earthquakes for sure, uh, but we kind of come at it from different angles. So myself, I'm more trained in observational seismology and a lot of my work from my PhD even up to now is focusing on taking seismic data from ground motion recordings, seismometers, for example, and then looking at their characteristics to see things like, for example, how does the the duration of an earthquake, so the time that it takes for in a particular earthquake for that fault to slip, how does that change with size? Because mm -hmm. it seems to follow sort of predictable relationships, which are consistent with sort of background theory, but it's directly relevant to maybe estimating how dangerous an earthquake can be for surrounding population or surrounding infrastructure. And I study a lot of small earthquakes because they're much more numerous, but because they kind of behave in a predictable way, I guess an important question is, can we take those things that we learned from small earthquakes and kind of scale them up to be able to say something about 
how larger earthquakes will behave, which are, are much uh, less frequent, at least in places where tectonic loading is, is slower, away from a plate boundary, mm-hmm. for example. And I, so I look at natural earthquakes. I look at earthquakes which are shallow. I look at earthquakes which are um, referred to as tectonic tremor, which is not really exactly the same as volcanic tremor, but has some sort of distinctive characteristics, which is deeper toward the brittle plastic transition zone. And I look at earthquakes from the surface to those depths. Uh, okay. Both natural earthquakes, sometimes I look at volcano earthquakes and then... Um, I also look at induced earthquakes. And the reason I, I look at induced earthquakes is because they provide a really good opportunity to, let's say, look at the physical properties of the earthquake and then have some constraints on the input stresses. For example, in the case of hydraulic fracturing induced earthquakes, you can find out what injection pressures are, injection rates, and so on, injection volumes, and then relate that um, to loading stresses and see how the how the corresponding seismic activity changes. Um, because okay. as far as okay. we can tell, a lot of those earthquakes are not physically different than natural earthquakes. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a let's call it pseudo experimental kind of a work let's say yeah i guess kind of in a sense it's like a mesoscale experiment so it's mm-hmm. more on realistic field scales and sort of uh, re- or let's say realistic field scale faults as opposed to laboratory scale faults mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah very cool um you mentioned that you work both with um, shallower and deeper earthquakes and what is the difference between those two probably as far as we can tell um, and of course, the deeper ones, they're smaller magnitude. So they're, they're kind of, they're what we call, we refer to as a low amplitude type of signal. So they're a little harder to study. Uh, and they don't seem to happen everywhere. Um, but as far as we can tell, there's not really much physically different going on. All of these processes are representative of probably shear failure on a fault or crack surface. But the difference between the, let's say, the tectonic tremor and the shallower earthquakes may be probably that that rupture velocity of two to three kilometers per second that I mentioned, which is more or less constant Mm -hmm. for earthquakes. Of course, there are exceptions. Um, But the deeper ones probably rupture a little bit more slowly, which probably Mm -hmm. makes sense because they're in under higher pressure, under higher lithostatic pressures and have warmer temperatures. They tend to occur around the quartz plastic transition so it's all sort of i guess consistent with intuition mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and um, is there any difference to which kind of tectonic settings we find one or the other um yeah so a lot of well earthquakes happen everywhere um down to the brittle, brittle plastic transition or what we call the seismogenic zone Uh, On transformed plate boundaries, it goes down to about 12 to 15 kilometers depth, depending on what the geotherm is in a particular area. Um, But for the brittle plastic transition zone type of tectonic tremor signals, we we see them more commonly in subduction zones. We also see some evidence, at least for um, triggered cases, so triggered by other distant earthquakes, um, surface waves, kind of 
shaking faults at large distances. We can see we see some of this tremor type of signal in transform fault settings, um, but it hasn't really been widely observed in normal faulting settings. Mm, okay. But interesting. Yeah. It probably represents with this lower rupture velocity. There's that doesn't mean that there's not deformation going on. It just could mean that it's a seismic or not happening at a fast enough rupture velocity that it generates seismic waves. Mm, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and you mentioned uh, the deeper uh, earthquakes. What what kind of depths are we talking about in terms of like kilometers or something? For the tectonic tremor, you mean, or for si for sort of standard garden variety earthquakes yeah okay so for the for tectonic tremor for example um along the san andreas fault near parkfield there's quite a bit of vigorous tremor activity in, in a little town called shalam which is basically and town is kind of generous it's a post office i think in a gas station but at this location in california the um there is they've been located at depths as shallow as about 16 kilometers down to about 30 kilometers. Mm -hmm. In subduction zones, they are a little bit deeper. Um, they're also maybe around 35 kilometers depths or so. Mm -hmm. But there have also been observations of shallow tremor in, for example, in subduction zones around the accretionary wedge, where oh, also okay. earthquakes are no longer generated, where it's thought that there's probably a lot of aseismic deformation going on. Mm, yeah, right. That's cool. Um, okay, so recently there was a, an earthquake in New Zealand and that was an 8 magnitude in the Richter scale. And that was actually less destructive than the one that happened in Italy in 2009, which was around 6. Like how how can that be if one is eight and the other is six yeah so actually there were three in, in new zealand um there was a 7.1 i think uh closer to new zealand and then the the 7.4 and i think it was in the 8.1 uh, were in the karamatic trench a bit further away and um the one in well, there have been a number of of shower around magnitude six earthquakes in the central apennines um, but there are a couple of factors which influence how much shaking you feel uh, as a person if you're near an earthquake when it happens. So some of them are related to the earthquake themselves. So for example, if you have an earthquake in a subduction zone that happens, so earthquakes in subduction zones, of course, can happen deeper because you've got cold material being subducted below um, at the plate interface below the overriding plate and that cold material stays brittle uh, down to greater depths and when you have brittle material that's when you can get an earthquake but if you get a, a deep earthquake it doesn't tend to generate as much surface wave energy and so probably if you remember back to your sort of intro seismology course, when you, when you look at a seismogram, you see the first what are called the body wave arrivals, the P wave and the S wave. And then later on, you see the surface wave arrivals, the love wave and the Rayleigh wave. Well, the love wave and the Rayleigh wave, if you go flip back to your textbook example, are much higher in amplitude than those body wave 
uh, arrivals, those P waves and S and S waves. And the S waves are still larger than the P waves. But it's those amplitude is, uh, if you square amplitude, that's proportional to energy. So if you're standing on the surface of the earth and you experience some large amplitude waves passing through, then you feel a lot of seismic energy. Mm -hmm. So the deep earthquakes don't generate surface waves as efficiently as shallow earthquakes do. So that's Mm -hmm. one factor. Uh, Another factor is, of course, amplitude decays with distance. So if you're close to an earthquake, then you're going to, and even if the earthquake is smaller, then you may potentially feel a larger shaking amplitude than if you're much further away from a larger earthquake. So if you look at, I think, the USGS, it's either USGS or the IRIS website of, of expected shaking from the Karamatic Trench earthquake in New Zealand, they were so far away that it was not expected that anybody on it, on the North or South Island felt that earthquake mm-hmm. um, because it was far enough away. On the other hand, in the central Apennines, it's uh, a densely populated area. Well, <laughs> maybe not compared to the rest of Italy, but Europe is densely populated um, compared to a lot of places. And so if there were a significant number of people who were probably close to those earthquakes, or certainly in, in L'Aquila, in the case of L'Aquila, for example, where they um, experienced high amplitude shaking, even though the magnitude of the earthquake was smaller. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of factors that are not necessarily related to the earthquake itself, but related more to what we call site responses and have to do with our infrastructure which are more related to something called intensity of shaking. So that's the intensity of shaking that you experience. So if I have, let's say I have two magnitude six earthquakes in the Apennines and and you and Sylvia are located in two different locations. Let's say you're standing on a hard rock site and Sylvia standing on a site which has a lot of loose sediment or sedimentary rocks and so on. There's Mm -hmm. something called seismic impedance which can amplify the waves of the, which pass through in a certain area and softer sediments or softer rocks can have a higher seismic impedance impedance and can amplify the shaking. So mm-hmm. even though let's say you on these two sites that you two are standing, if they're let's say a hundred kilometers from the epicenter, Sylvia is probably going to experience much more intense shaking than you are on a hard rock site. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, let's say you're in different kinds of structures. If a person is in an unreinforced masonry structure that is less strong uh, and can experience more damage in an earthquake as opposed to a, um, a wooden structure, for example. My husband, who's German, who is, um, was, did his PhD also in California with me, always asked me, why are these residential houses built with wood frames? You know, he's used to this solid, sturdy, good quality German construction. And I explained to him that for residential structures, they are stronger in earthquakes. They withstand shaking because they can handle shear stresses from seismic waves passing through. And so the integrity of the structure is also going to play a role in terms of what kind of, uh, how strong it is, whether it withstands shaking or not, and kind of what ground shaking you experience when you when you're when waves pass through whatever mm-hmm. location mm-hmm. you're at when an earthquake happens yeah that's uh, that's that's very interesting um have you ever felt an earthquake i mean coming from california maybe you have experienced that 
Yeah, yeah, I felt a few. <laughs> and uh, so which was one was a... the biggest one you've ever felt? The biggest one I um, felt was the Hector Mine earthquake in 1999. I was a student, mm -hmm. and um, but it was at, at like two or three in the morning, uh, and I was about 150 kilometers from the epicenter. So it wasn't it wasn't scary, um, and I was really disoriented. But I woke up because my bed was rocking back and forth, uh -huh. and I just thought, "Oh, that's cool," and I went back to sleep. <laughs> um, and I don't think I really realized what was going on until the morning when I woke up and then read the news. But I felt also as a grad student, I was uh, in Santa Cruz and I felt an earthquake. Um, I think it was also maybe somewhere between 50 and 70 kilometers away. Um, and also, yeah, I was also dozing off. It was in the evening. I think I was falling asleep. I did experience one as a teaching assistant, as a grad student also, my advisor taught sort of an introductory earthquakes class, and I was proctoring the final exam. There were about three students left, and I, I sort of felt a really small high-frequency shaking, and I thought, oh, that's an earthquake, and it was. It was close to Palm Springs, and so I counted the time between the P and the S wave, and then the rough rule of thumb is if you feel both and you multiply it by seven... Uh, that tells you how far away the earthquake was. And then the other students felt the, the S wave and they all looked up and said, did we get an A on the exam? Because, you know, this is the earthquakes course and it's not an earthquake. <laughs> like, nah, did they, no, did they get an A? <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> I'm, one of them, I'm guessing not. <laughs> But uh, the only time I've ever felt an earthquake was in Perth in Western Australia of all the places like you know you oh, imagine that these okay. very old terrains you're never gonna feel an earthquake but uh, yeah. they do have some tremors over there and that was the yeah. only time I've ever felt anything huh interesting yeah because because you know in Brazil like there isn't a lot of earthquakes there are a few um, in my state of Minas Gerais uh, around the northern part of the country there are a few but uh, yeah Not very common, really. Mm. Um, so how do geoscientists monitor earthquakes? And is it possible to predict when there is going to be an earthquake? Or are there any indicators of, you know, big upcoming earthquakes? Um, so generally, we measure them or monitor earthquakes with seismic networks. So we have seismometers, which measure ground motion. And depending on whether you have a seismometer installed close to a fault where you expect a large earthquake, then you would probably install what's called an accelerometer. And instead of measuring ground velocity, you want to measure strong shaking. So you measure ground acceleration. And then a lot of uh, seismometers, which are very sensitive and measuring earthquakes over a broad frequency band, um, close in distance or far away in distance are called what we call broadband seismometers and they measure ground velocity. Um, and so when you have system or seismic networks, so Germany has a national seismic network, for example, uh, most countries do and we all contribute data to, typically to um, data repositories so that data in general are public uh, for the most part at least for permanent monitoring stations. And then with those data, you can locate earthquakes and create what's called an earthquake catalog, which is basically a list of earthquake, what we call origin times. So the time that it happened 
and the hypocentral location, which is latitude, longitude, and depth. Um, and then generally there's some other information too, which relate to how well constrained the hypocenter location is, what's, what type of magnitude it is. There are a couple, a couple of different magnitude scales which are used and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, for example, I myself for my research have 13 seismic stations that I usually deploy in sort of project type work uh, and oftentimes make use of permanent networks and sort of augment them for whatever kind of research objectives um, a certain project is trying to um, trying to study, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the second question again? Uh, about <laughs> for... predicting them. Oh, yeah, about predicting earthquakes. So we, it's, predicting is kind of a dirty word in seismology. We typically (laughs) say forecast (laughs) because basically what we can do are give probabilities about, um, usually when you see seismic hazard maps, it's about, it's usually a probability of exceeding some certain ground shaking in the next 30 or 50 years, for example. When a big earthquake happens, we can do a fairly good job of predicting, af- forecasting aftershocks because you gener- according to a couple different sort of empirical laws, we expect, let's say, if a big earthquake, a magnitude six earthquake happens in the Apennines, we can expect that the largest aftershock will be roughly um, an order of magnitude less than the, the main shock. And we can expect a certain decay in time what we call with an empirical law called Omori's law decay, Omori law decay, um, and we expect for every magnitude six earthquakes in a large spatial area in a large um, amount of time, ten magnitude fives, a hundred magnitude fours, a thousand magnitude threes, and so on and so forth. So we can use these empirical observations to make good uh, uh, forecasts for aftershocks. Mm-hmm. On geological time scales, I would say we can we can do a very good job of forecasting where large earthquakes will occur. But the problem is on, on time scales, which are relevant for, let's say society, societally relevant. Um, we do, we can identify areas where seismic hazard is high, mm-hmm. but we don't really do much better than random in terms of predicting a large earthquake. Right. It's very difficult to do. And mm-hmm. to be honest, it may not ever be possible because there's a lot of research when we, as in recent years, our seismic station networks densify um, and we can study small earthquakes very carefully. There's a lot of reason to believe, at least in for some populations of earthquakes, there are no physical differences between a small and a large earthquake. So that means when an earthquake starts, there's no distinguishing characteristic about its waveform that tells me, okay, this is just going to end up being a magnitude three earthquake, and this one's going to end up being a magnitude seven. Mm-hmm. Um, but the earth is very uh, complex. Not all earthquakes behave the same. So, yeah, uh, but sure. at this point, we cannot. Mm-hmm. And uh, keeping up with this theme, you know, there have been a couple of good movies on the big one. <laughs> Feel bad as well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, on the big earthquake associated to um, San Andreas, yeah. um, is you know is that massively destructive earthquake coming at some point in the future? Yes, <laughs> I think that you can just uh, 
of course, you can always say yes. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> the Earth is still. I mean, the the whole plate tectonic machine, uh, plate tectonics machine is still working, right? So yeah. for sure, it's coming. Just um, the question of when that I can't answer. But yeah, in Southern California, for sure. I mean, it's a major plate boundary. The last um, major rupture was the Fort Tejon earthquake in 1850. Uh, And it's very dangerous to say that earthquakes have sort of a regular recurrence time. But if you kind of take an average recurrence time, the Southern San Andreas is definitely due for a big earthquake. Mm -hmm. But earthquakes don't always behave like we expect. So it's best just to be prepared. Have water. Have a radio with batteries. Shoes under your bed. Yeah. yeah. What's the name of the of that? Like you know, the people that are expecting like a, a disaster. You know, preppers. The preppers. Yeah, that's the German name. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. Actually, I don't know what we say in English. My my English is getting kind of convoluted now, and I can't remember what <laughs> came from German and what got <laughs> what's <laughs> an original expression. Um, For our next segment, we like to ask always the same three questions at the end of every episode. Uh, These are questions which are a bit more personal and they are designed to make each guest a bit more familiar to the listener. Uh, They also allow us to compare experiences and opinions across all of the geoscience research fields. And they have been recently reshaped thanks to um, the Rebecca Trilogy Part 1. <laughs> so my first question to you is, how did you first decide to become a geoscientist? I think I remember when I was in elementary school, we had an earthquake drill where we had to get under a desk. Uh, I think, yeah, I think we had to get under a desk or something like that. And it just was really impressive to me. And I think from that moment on, I was definitely interested in earthquakes and other kind of things like volcanoes that cause natural disasters, mm-hmm. for sure. That's great. Um, the second question is, what are some of the specifics of the research that you are conducting at the present? Uh, well, so I'm looking at a lot at um, hydraulic fracturing, uh, fracturing seismicity in the Western Canada ses- sedimentary basin. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of an in- interesting puzzle because there are a lot of large, in terms of large relative to hydraulic fracturing induced earthquakes, but a lot of large earthquakes that are generated in Western Canada. So we're talking over magnitude three and four. Um, and it's kind of a puzzle why, because Typically, hydraulic fracturing doesn't involve a large body of fluids. And in some cases, these large earthquakes get generated before they've even had a chance to inject much fluid. And Mm -hmm. so from an earthquake physics viewpoint, that's a really interesting question of why why that happens. What are the geological conditions that, that sort of prime that setting for induced seismicity? Because it's probably relevant for a lot of other uh, earthquake nucleation problems, I think. And then otherwise, we're looking in subduction zones and looking at non-volcanic tremor and looking basically at seismotectonic questions, how earthquakes relate to faults, how their properties change depending on faulting conditions, um, things like what we call static stress drop, 
uh, which is the stress released in an earthquake, um, and how faults and fluids interact, when fluids, when permeability changes, how that influences where earthquakes are located, where they're generated, and so on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, what do you enjoy doing when you are not geosciencing? Well, um, definitely doing stuff with my kids. I have a mm-hmm. five-year-old and an eight-year-old. Um, and they are very geocurious, so we go hiking and are outdoors a lot whenever we can. And they always have lots of interesting questions about rocks, and they have their own hand lenses and, and hammers and stuff like that. Oh, that's so cute. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but otherwise, yeah, we just do, we, we like doing stuff outdoors. We're an active family, and I like cooking a lot. Um, mm-hmm. I like playing beach volleyball. Um, oh, man, yeah, that's... Uh... I actually did see that maybe on your Twitter or something, you know, when I was researching for this episode. And, uh, you know, I used to play volleyball when I was in high school too. So we oh, should okay. definitely have a match together. Yeah, okay. Yep. Yeah. We've got a we've got a group as soon as the... There's, in fact, a beach um, volleyball club close to the university. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. Yeah, Which that would be indoor, awesome. Indoor and outdoor courts. Thank you for chatting with us today, Rebecca. Uh, Me personally, I've never studied uh, tremors before, but this conversation, A-A-Yo, Shook Malfoundations. So I'll probably (laughs) re-record this because that was terrible, but. (laughs) (laughs) I liked it, I liked the effort. (laughs) But anyway, thanks for participating. Oh, thanks for having me, it was a lot of fun. Here's another try. I, I, I shook my foundations. Alright, much better. Nice Chats is part of the Geology Podcast Network and it is sponsored by Traveling Geologist. Follow Traveling Geologist on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. More episodes of this and other GPN podcasts are available at travelinggeologist.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And that includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. In two weeks, we will conclude this epic trilogy by talking about processes that are a bit more superficial. Uh, The great discontinuity and even a famous American natural landmark. And by American, I mean United States. Stay tuned. Uh, This time I won't make any jokes to end up the show, but uh, rather I'll pay homage to a great Newcaster that we all love. Here it comes. Stay classic, San Diego. I'm Ron Burgundy. So, yeah, so at this point, we'll, um, 
I, I usually put like a little intermission that, oh, sorry. So I, I have a, a problem with my ears that uh, they don't fit um, traditional earphones. So they're always falling, <laughs> it's a real pain. I need to buy some better ones, you know. <laughs> okay, anyway.